few seconds late, but Josh had to get a hat. So it wasn't like solo flighting on the hat. Thanks, man. Yeah, it's got, it's my official uh, beaver hat. Perfect. Welcome, everyone. As always, your comments are a crucial part of this event. So please participate with your snarkiest wisdom. We are here to discuss the five horsemen of the apocalypse. This is not the AI fan club meeting. So if you're looking for the AI fan club meeting, that's in another LinkedIn room. <laughs> not here. Not no here. Way. No, no. Um, but yeah, so this this is the occasional blogs that matter edition. Every now and then someone writes a blog that captures my attention enough that I really want to dig into it, do a little deeper dive as to what prompted this outburst. And Josh, Josh wrote a post I'm going to link to. It's also on LinkedIn, but I'm going to do the link his website version. It's called The Five Horsemen of the Business Apocalypse, a quick guide to the issues that should be keeping every CEO awake at night. So we're going to dig into this post, why Josh wrote it. This was a little bit, it struck me, Josh, as a little bit of a spleen vent, but also one that has been building up over the course of a long time. So I want to get into like all the thinking behind it. And then, and then, uh, you know, we are really going to try to avoid a, a deep dive into AI. I just wrote a bigger post this week on AI projects onto Genomica, if you really want to talk about that. But I think AI will factor in a little bit. I have a little bit of a rant I want to go on about that, but I'm going to save that because this is really more about like the fact that on some level we've we've lost our way in terms of what businesses are really needing to focus on in 2024. And I think that's what Josh's post is all about. Yep. And uh, Brent says you're disappearing into the background a little bit, but I, I think you're there, man. I think you're there. I think, I think, yeah, I, Josh is disappearing. It's my hat is disappearing. I'm, I'm here, but. Um, oh, by the way, uh, by the way, folks, uh, Brent's got a fun show coming up right after ours. Um, and they're going to be kicking around uh, why YouTubers are quitting. And I have some opinions on that, Brent. So I'm going to see if I can uh, swing by your show at some point to air air that out a little bit. But anyhow, so that's coming okay, up and immediately following this broadcast, unless we run long. That That's at the top of the hour. So FYI. Okay. Well, hopefully I won't well, disappear in my background. I blurred. So okay. to be honest. Brent, let us know if Josh continues to fade into oblivion there. So, so Josh, let's, let's, let's get into this, this post a little bit. Uh, what, what brought this post to fruition? Like you've been stewing on this stuff for a while. So, so why did this suddenly say, okay, now I got to write this. Yeah. Well, you know, the, and this is, it is, this is the anti AI corner of the, the world for the, at least the moment. And, and that this was certainly a reaction to the absolute sort of slavish kind of attention that AI was getting from every keynote stage and in every press release. And I, um, well, actually let's, was, let's, let's retrace that a little bit because you had, you had a post, one of your most viral LinkedIn posts of all time, right? Just a few weeks ago on this topic, right? You blew a gasket about AI overdose after a briefing. And you got a lot I've of, I blown a lot of gaskets. about. Yeah. It. Yeah, yeah. But that was, but that was a big one, right? Cause that was, that kind of went viral. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, that was a smaller version of, yeah, that was a mini post on LinkedIn. And and basically, yeah, I said I was just tired of, of, of everything being all about AI. And, you know, and I think that, you know, the, the reaction to that really prompted me to finish this piece because this one, the Five Horsemen piece has been stewing, you know, for a while. Um, 
And, you know, as I said in the beginning, it really started, you know, as I, as I hit the conference circuit last year, looking for, rea- you know, looking for reality. I'm, you know, Diogenes, you know, walking around Athens with a lamp looking for the one honest man. Uh, I'm looking for the, the, the truth about what's really keeping people up or should keep people up at night. And, and this is what kept coming to me. And I, I think, I think the, the, the thing that really sort of kicked it out of the park for me in a way was I was actually at um, Success Factors conference in, in Las Vegas in October. And I wrote, I wrote a post about that, that insane month of too many conferences. But, but you know, obviously, everyone's, it's a people-centric conference. Everyone's talking about people, people, people. And then I um, – <laughs> I blew a good – Brent's Brent. Brent seen you blow enough gaskets that he needs more details on each specific okay. one. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that, Brent. Right. Anyway, okay, so. We'll get there. So, so, so I'm, I walk – I leave this – conference. And as it turns out, on a more personal note, there's a conference about uh, delivering services to developmentally disabled adults. It's a family thing I'm involved in. It's a group called um, um, Together for Choice. And I walk into that conference and they're talking about all these issues. But every single caregiver there starts off by saying, I can't find the people. I can't hire them. I can't train them. I can't retain them. And I just sort of went, like, I leave my tech world and I walk into this thing and Blam. And then, you know, and then I started sort of counting every single experience I have from that moment on. I hit the road. I started traveling, went to Europe. I keep running into this problem of, you know, of human capacity. <laughs> we're, we're, we're both overdoing it. We have too many people flying, too many people going to the hospital, too many people, um, you know, for the capacity of the infrastructure we have. And on the other hand, on the, on the, on the supply side, we don't have enough people to run the show. So this this just struck me that, you know, and and God bless them, the folks, you know, at, at Success Factors make a big deal about, you know, that they've got AI now that'll help you write a job rec. Um, and that's useful, no no doubt, you know. It, but if you don't, <laughs> you can't fill the job, if you don't have people, if you don't have the ability to, again, to to make, make these competitive offers, it doesn't matter how, much AI you've got. So, so right. that was sort of the, the trigger. And then I started, you know, refining the list. Let me, let me just cut in just real quick. So just, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of spoil the surprise for people in case you want to know who the five horsemen are. We're just going to oh, yeah. do them real quick. It's people, data process, risk management, and spend management. And so Josh is obviously now talking about people, which is the the first one, and one thing I'll just say real quickly on that front is I think what I find fascinating about the people one is, well, two, thing, two things, but one of them is that you just see it across industries, right? Because I, I end up at a lot of different kinds of shows talking to customers in different industries. And like, I don't care whether it's retail or manufacturing or whatever it is. There, there's some kind of people or label, label, labor issue that's incredibly vexing at the moment, you know, and... And it has humbled me a little bit because I took a stance some years ago that that um, that we we were going to have an issue there with 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 automation versus talent. But like so, for example, what we're finding is at the moment companies can't get enough of either one. <laughs> you know, so I was expecting these things to come to a head more. I actually had to admit to Vinny that I was wrong about that, which was oh. Really hard to admitting to Vinny Merchandani, who's a fellow analyst, that that I was wrong about something in an argument with him. That was like a really humbling moment for me. <laughs> but uh, but about seven years ago, we did a podcast about that because he wrote a book on this topic, and 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 I was going after him pretty good around that. I thought automation was going to like 
like basically like be this sort of job killer and and look, I, I do think someday that is going to be a problem. And I think there's a time and a place to start talking about what that day will look like, but that day is nowhere soon. And at the moment, companies can't get enough of either one. And that really is interesting, right, Josh? Because no matter what industry you're in, you hear these stories. Right. And, and you know, so it's sort of encapsulated already with on, the term automation really, or the, the function of automation is really dependent on getting people data process right. You can't do automation unless you got that. Yeah, you got those those um, those. Brent, would you stop with the snarky comments, man? Um, <laughs> no, Brent's killing it, man. No, he and he's right too. I did. I had to, I had to suck it up, and it was it was healthy for me. I mean, I had to seek counseling afterwards, but it was good for me to <laughs> to admit that. But anyhow, so continue. So, so no, no, but this, you, you know, so I think the point is absolutely well taken that if we do everything right in the technology side, we can drive more automation. That's exactly what it's all, you know, it's all about. The problem is that, you know, that's the theory. <laughs> the reality is very, very different. And and I think, you know, what's fascinating is is just the, you know, the 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 idea that we we, you know, the total quality management that the whole, you know, Toyota method method, you know, started 50 some years ago. And there's this mistaken idea that you could take that kind of Autom process automation um, that TQM and other movements uh, created and, and move it into the software world. And actually, this guy, Michael Kusumano from MIT, wrote a book about Japanese software factories and, you know, and said, oh, my God, the Japanese are going to take over because they know how to do, do this stuff. And no, you can't. You, you know, it turns out that automation of human-mediated processes like the ones we work with in, in the tech world it, it, it is not that simple because you've got these massive other problems that boil down to a number of rubrics like change management. It's much easier to fix a factory floor than it is to fix a complex business process. So, so I, th yeah. I think, yeah, that promise remains to be fulfilled because the other things need to be fixed. Yeah. And one other interesting twist is that, is that it turns out that the physical movements involved in robotics are one of the hardest machine learning problems. And, and so factories have only been able to automate some certain um, certain very controlled procedures. Actually, physical movement is really difficult, which is why you don't have uh, robot butlers in your home. And the best you can do is this like little bug, like little vacuum thing that that runs around and scares your cats. That that's as close as we've gotten. You know, no one can make you an espresso or load your dishwasher or anything else. I was just listening to a podcast with some AI expert scientists talking about how we still don't have someone who can load and unload the dishwasher. You know, oh, well, and so that's the most dangerous place to yeah. go because it's that, yeah. That's so, so physical movements are really difficult. Whereas in white collar settings, some of that can, can is controllable because it doesn't involve phys the physical world. But to your point, there's all this complexity in, in our, in, in our processes in the enterprise and, and you can't automate complexity. Yeah. Or it's very, very difficult. Right. Right. And that's, you know, and that's a sep on a separate rant. Um, Right. And, and Bonnie, Bonnie, exactly. hundred percent. Correct. General, general. I'm just going to read that real quick for our audio people later. Bonnie Duncan Tinder. Hi, Bonnie. Good to see you. Look forward to catching up. Bonnie says so true on human complexity, Josh. And this is why Gen I isn't going to magically make implementation of software better in the near term. Funny because I heard something very different from a couple of vendors this week who told me that AI was going to transform the world and the economy this year. But anyhow, I'm with you, Bonnie. I'm with you on that. Yeah. 
And and you well, know, Brent and says, and yet we have cars driving themselves on the highway. Actually, Brent, only in very controlled conditions. Um, yeah. And that's if you look at it, the predictions on on autonomous vehicles are years and years and years behind. Uh, in fact, Elon Musk promised, I think, in 2016, we there there be a car summoned from uh, New York to L.A. or one, one of the other, and he's had to postpone that every single year. We're not close. So, under only very controlled conditions, and that's because of the of the difficulty in adapting to the physical environment. Yeah. But I don't want to really, ha- I don't want to spend an hour on that today. So we're no, not, we're not talk talking about, about AI. Right. Yeah. 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 We're trying not to, I mean, we have to touch on it obviously, but it, I really don't right. want that to be the focus. So, okay. So, so, so getting back to this a little bit, so that, that people think kind of crept up on you, but I think eventually what you realized is that there's kind of a, you picked five, right? So you kind of felt like there's a number of sort of intersecting preoccupations that CA, CEOs are concerned about. Yeah. And, the, and you know, and the next one is data and data is, data is the easy one because data has, has always been, um, you know, the, <coughs> the third rail of, of, you know, of technology projects, technology implementation. Um, um, and, you know, it's interesting because when, when I first started really following enterprise software back in the nineties, as a, as an analyst, I ran across, you know, this big, implementation uh of a of a bespoke system running on an oracle database and they you know they hit the go live switch it was a one of europe's big, biggest rental companies and of course they you know it's one of the hit hit go live and everything dies and they spend several weeks you know remediating this problem that basically was about data migration they just screwed up the data migration that was back in the 90s and for the next 30 years all i've done is watch these data problems get worse not better um, but now it's more complex because now we we don't just need data to run the transactions, you know, to get people to rent cars. We need data for provenance, track and trace. We need data because we've got to watch, you know, the ethical nature of our business. We have to be regulatory compliant. Everything everything we want to do in the world of enterprises is about anal- analytics and planning. Can't do that without good data. Uh, we need to move from the on-premise to the cloud. We got to fix the data problem. I mean, just these. Everything we do ends up hitting this data wall continually. Sovereignty, security. Well, and and and, and I don't want to again. I don't want to get too far into AI, but the other piece of it that you've noted and that I totally agree with is that quality data is is going to be instrumental to that also. And what we're seeing again and again, like I did a case study on an AI service bot that was a pretty good case study. But that was because they had a very high quality data set that was powering that. And I just tweeted something today about a nightmare customer service bot. Because it was just thrown out there, the technology was put out there that wasn't supported by proper data and it was going off the rails all over the place. So, so data, data uh, even though you you don't uh, you you get you get very testy about AI overdose, but you also sort of like the fact that it is at least provoking this data conversation. So, well, yeah, I, that's great because at the end of the day. You know, you, look as we keep saying, AI has been around for a long time, and AI is always going to be dependent on on the ability to do something based on you know making improved decision based in theory on some historical information so you got to always have great da- data um garbage and, in garbage out says bonnie quality yeah. of software implementation hinges on data quality um hey dan um i don't want to get too far into this cuz i 
we really promised we weren't going to do an AI show today, but um, sorry about the AI thing, trying to relate it to human jobs, replace or augment. I'll just answer this very quickly right now this because this, this is a much longer discussion, but augment and the reason for that is that today's generation of AI systems are not cognitive systems. So basically think of it this way. They can do tasks, but not jobs. And so because of that, you can only really augment. Now, if you have the same task being performed by 100 people, then that can essentially sometimes become the equivalent of a certain number of heads who don't have to do that job. But at the moment, this current generation of AI, which will not advance anytime too soon, is not about jobs. It's about tasks. And that's what a lot of people are getting wrong. So anyway, I just want to leave that alone for now because I want to stay focused on data. Josh, can I throw one other thing at you that I think is interesting about the data problem and why I think it keeps CEOs up at night is you've you've harped for a long time on data silos within the enterprise, but I think the other really huge problem is that if you want to really talk about making a good decision with data in today's environment, you're also thinking about what I think of as like data variety being a key issue, right? So you have external data sources that are important, whether it's weather data or demographic data or other forms of social and data that could have a real time element. And there, and a lot of that is unstructured data and it's not in your transactional system. And so these data problems, like you said, Oh yeah, clean up all your internal data, but you still might make really bad decisions because you don't have a lot of the external data in those systems that you need. So data is a real big conundrum. Yeah, you need you need good partner data, supplier data that's external, um, and um, you know, and you need you need this you know you need this data for all kinds of reasons. So yeah, it's 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 really you know, again, it was a second and and that that data epiphany was triggered by you know an ASUG chemicals industry conference um, where you know where this customer talked about why they can't upgrade <laughs> to S4 HANA at the pace that SAP wants. And it was all about having an actual rational, extremely rational approach to a ma- massive data problem that had to be solved first before they did an upgrade because they were smart enough, all credit to them, to know if they tried to do the upgrade with the with the crap data, they were going to yep. get a crap result. So, so that really you know, banged on, on me big time. Um, and then of can course- I throw this, Can I throw this into, because yeah. I think this is another data element as far as like this, what I just brought up about different types of data. Because uh, Dan Aldridge says, again, Josh, you mentioned ESG as being a pressing business problem. Do you think AI fatigue will eventually lead us back to more ESG dialogue in 2024? And let me just add to that, that I think that's another element where suddenly now you're thinking- gosh, I really want to have all this carbon data and I want to have all this energy consumption data. And so now you have another element of both opportunity and challenge around data. What do you think of that question on ESG? No, absolutely. And it's, again, it's a lot of that data is going to be from outside of your organization. So the quality issue, the governance and and control issue, um, um, you know, it's a really big, big problem. And, you know, big data, as, as Bonnie just said, absolutely is still on the table. S- small data is also there as well, because sometimes you're talking about relatively small sets of data, but they all the more reason they got to be as clean as hell or, or, you know, or the, or the error rate is going to, you know, be astronomical. So, so data really, you know, s- smacked me in the face. And then of course, process is always there. Um, you know, process is this this underlying question of. You know, By the way, this you... process is Josh's third That's horseman. Third for those of right. you, for those of you keeping track of the horseman, we've now moved on to three we need process. Yeah, we need like a right. card of process. Right. Okay, number three. 
Yeah. And, you know, and, and like, you know, like I alluded earlier, you know, that process, we process looks easy if you think of it as a, you know, in the world of, you know, six Sigma, I mean, oh my God, that's a, that's a Jack Welch idea. Jack Welch, uh, who's been, I think, justifiably discredited as a, the gut management god of, of the 20th century, really pushed this stuff around as a great idea. In the meantime, built a company that was so bloody siloed, there was there was truly no no synergy, and and you know we've seen the the aftermath of that kind of thinking. Um, so you know you got to you got to you got to fix the process problem. You got to start by when <laughs> you get to pestilence. Thank you. Uh, he's in, he's in there somewhere. Um, you know we got to you got to fix the the process problem, and, and that means you got to fix the silo problem because the silos you know we're banging up against these silos continually, um, and. Um, you know, what is ironic about that is that we have a lot of vendors, uh, very solid vendors who are attacking that problem of silo busting and, and process remediation. And you can do it in many, many different ways. Um, but the real problem with that is, you know, ultimately who, who owns, who's the champion of that process remediation when, when the silos are so well established and well uh, entrenched that um, there's very few C-level execs who have the both the vision and the and the remit to, and, and the time and interest to actually look at that. Um, so you know the visionaries are stuck with process uh, trying to trying to break down these silos that are so well entrenched. It's it's almost impossible to 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 fix. So so I look at that. And, you know that's another one. Like okay, I, AI. <laughs> AI is nice, but let me let me actually break these walls down first because nothing nothing will will matter if if you know we're running this extremely siloed organization. Right, Josh. So let me just ask you about that real quick because obviously there's sort of like a one of the sexiest categories in software right now is sort of this new generation of process mining vendors or process whatever they want to call them process analysis process automation. Do you think that constitutes uh, a major breakthrough in addressing this or is just one more way of having this conversation but then you're still stuck with a difficult problem well you know i'm i'm somewhat agnostic as to the many approaches to this and you know you've got what we i hopefully bearing this term robotic process automation rpa is one of them obviously process mining is another one obviously you know you can do you can you know you can do all kinds of things to solve it. The question is where's the political will and where's the change management to really make it happen? And that's that's still the underlying problem in the enterprise. Um, and until we fix that, again, you know, almost nothing else matters. Um, it's so damn important. Um, and and I'm still I'm still looking for that that person, you know, that 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 category of of leader who really owns that silo busting job and so far we don't we don't have a vp of silo busting and we really need one desperately without necessarily naming a specific company have you run into situations where you think there are companies that are getting some things done here are there is it a, is it like pockets of excellence within certain companies certain departments certain areas Absolutely. like what when you do you have moments where you're like, wow, this company's on the right right track? Because I'm worried that this process thing's a little bit of a bog pit. So, you know, I, the, the 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 thing I keep looking for is the, the, if you will, the process of silo 
busting and who and the ownership of that process. And so, you know, we I, I heard from several um, again. I think it was at the Success Factors conference. A couple of um, couple of uh, CHROs who stood up and said, "Yeah, we are the ones doing this. We are the silo busters." Those were they were both you know. Um, <clears throat> They were both uh, people-centric businesses, professional service organizations. So, the, the, you know that's super important. Uh, I ran into a number of years ago. It was a couple of years ago. You know, a CISO at a major transportation company who who was able to do this. He, you know, I said, "How do you get? How do you get permission?" He said, "Well, I just scare the pants out of everybody <laughs> with with the with the privacy security thing, and then they fall into line." And I, you know, and I've met other folks who you know have the ear of the CFO. And are able to pull this off. So it's not impossible. It can be done. And the real forward-thinking companies are at least allowing these, you know, these these individuals to do that. But there has to be a much has to be a bigger system-wide kind of, or, or I'm sorry, uh, you know, economy-wide view of doing this because it, it's only happening in pockets, uh, as far as I can tell, in terms of the real broad approach to silo busting. I want to get back briefly, Dan, to your uh, question about ESG as a pressing problem and AF fatigue versus ESG dialogue. I wrote a post in Digenomica a few months ago called Attention Enterprises, Generative AI is Sexy, but ESG has Teeth. And um, I took I took the position that, in fact, the regulatory issues around ESG were going to force spending. Um, you know, some of that is a wait and see in the U.S. environment, obviously. Uh, one, you know, California has some potent legislation pending the federal government. It's a little uncertain. I think we're going to see a lot of state to state stuff there, Dan. But I think one thing we can say definitively right now is that any company with a European footprint and some other international areas as well has to put this on their radar screen. And it's actually frustrating when this issue becomes too politicized. Although I think you can have a political discussion around it, but but actually it's really more of a business discussion at this point because a lot of it comes down to understanding that, you know, from a fundamental business perspective, tracking this kind of stuff is good for is good for your business, it's good for your reporting, it's good for your energy consumption and management. And Brian Summer, I recommend his uh, ebook that he wrote on this topic. Um, and there's a real book too. I think you get a printed copy also, but but he he did a pretty comprehensive look at what this sort of next gen ESG vendor might look like. And you know, frankly, uh, I'll throw all the ERP vendors under the bus. They should have been on this a long time ago. They should have been integrating this into into how we track and manage all of our corporate uh, systems. And I think you will see that over time. Um, and and obviously, some of them are making a lot of noise around this right now. But I would say that's great. But you should have been on it a long time ago. Right. And, um, and it, that's a perfect lead into risk management, right? Number four, by the yeah. way, for those of you keeping score, this is Josh's fourth horse. Okay. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about that one. Well, you know, I mean, it, it, and, and that's a perfect example. We've got, you know, we've got ESG, we've got, you know, all kinds of, of, of new net new reporting requirements, uh, potentially around, you know, around carbon you know, carbon footprint reporting, for instance. Um, and that's on top of the, you know, extant regulatory uh, reporting in, in, in lots of industries, whether, you know, whether you're making tires, you know, or, 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 or pharmaceuticals, uh, you're, you're in a highly rec- regulated industry and you got, you got to, you got to manage that risk appropriately. I, you know, though, when I really thought about particularly this, you know, this, this broadcast here, I'm like, what, what would I say, you know, about it? 
now that's maybe a little fresher. It's not really fresher, but you know, just just keeping up with technology is a risk management problem. Um, I think that you know we've got we've got so much uh, at risk by getting technology wrong, and the, you know the bets the bets are you know the, the bets are on the table because everyone wants to be a digital enterprise. Everyone wants to have that very you know that very sophisticated you know interaction with customers and partners. They want to have this very these smooth and, and efficient supply chains, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and to do that, you got to spend money. You got to disrupt your company. So, so in a way, tech is its own risk, you know, management problem. Um, and you know, shout out to Bonnie. Bonnie's got some interesting data on how to mitigate that risk, because a, a lot of that risk happens in the implementation phase. Uh, but you know, again, if you look at risk management, you go back to all the new things we have to do with data in terms of track and trace and ethics, and you know, we got to have good data for that. That's because we have to use that data for you know for managing risk. Um, and you know, we've got just unbelievably, you know, escalating risk. My, you know, the companies are, you know, ransomware is an enormous problem that no one can afford to have. Um, the issues with ethical supply chains are another one, you know, who the heck can afford to find out that as we have, you know, this happens in the news all the time that all of a sudden Starbucks is selling stuff that might not have the proper provenance, you know, uh, for the, for its materials. Um, Dan says, uh, Dan says, Amen on ESG should be incorporated into ERP, not just the green ledger and carbon accounting and S4 HANA. Yeah, I don't want to pick on SAP too much there because SAP has done, I think, a fairly good job amongst the larger vendors, even though, like I said, none of them, I don't think, move fast enough on this. But but yeah, you're, you're, the power of this is embedded in all, in basically all the, should be embedded in all the so transactional software that you manage. Um, and Dan says, sorry for clogging up the chat, but, uh, <laughs> but, but Dan, see, the thing is, this is an audience driven show. I know this is kind of weird because I know everyone's used to like tuning in and like listening to pundits and, but that's not what we Bravo. do here. Yeah. That's not what we do here. We actually, I actually interrupt people so we can like have a group conversation. So yeah, you came, keep clogging up the works, man. Cause that's how we get smarter. We don't get smarter through like guru syndrome. I'm so sick of this. I went to like a guru webinar this week where two self-congratulatory executives talked uh, about how great AI was and how awesome the world was going to be in the next 12 months. Never mind the fact that we're in the midst of some very disconcerting global conflicts and, you know, facial recognition software is being deployed by a lot of unscrupulous individuals. But no, everything's great. And then um, at the end, they're like, how did this go? And I was like, well, it would have been nice if you'd ask a few questions. And so here's here's my tip for executives, which is once you're in an executive role at a company, if you can't handle an open Q&A session, just quit. Just go home. <laughs> Seriously, go home. Like, like if you can't handle that, then you don't belong on stage. So add that to your uh, five horsemen. Maybe the six is like dealing with. Oh, yeah. Dealing with people. Maybe maybe number six is dealing with people like you and me. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So we have risk okay. management. Does anyone want to? No, but don't go away. Don't, don't, uh, we still have more to say about risk. Okay. Well, Sorry. well, because because I want to I want to riff a little bit on what Dan just said, which is that you know what accounting in general is shifting, and that's that's really you know at the end of the day, how did the whole ERP market start? It started because financial accounting was it was imperative across you know the different different. Uh, reporting silos in, in a company and and you know the the early the early pioneers of enterprise resource planning really understood that and i think you know i think what we're doing um 
you know, this comment you made, Dan, and, and the ones that, you know, the follow-ups to that are really saying, yeah, you know, this risk management is the reason why we have enterprise software at the end of the day, it, 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 or at least one of the principal reasons. Obviously, you know, you, you buy this software because you want to make money. You buy the software because you want to count your money. You want to buy, buy the software because you need to pay people um, along the way, but you also buy the software because you've got, you know, you've got to be able to, prove to whoever it is, whether it's, you know, financial regulator or, or the environmental protective agency or the USDA or the FDA, whoever it is, that you're actually compliant. So so I think baking this in, as opposed to charging a premium for it, is, is certainly ultimately what's going to happen. Uh, and, and I am... Um, Good one, Bonnie. She thinks I was at Davos because of that last rant. Um, might yeah. as well. I might as well have been. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that, that basically was what happened at, at Davos, also. So, was that uh, yeah, was that one of the Davos uh, presentations? Uh, it was not about? actually, but it might oh. as well have been. You might as uh, well. Have been, before yeah. we actually get to number five, uh, does any yeah. anyone in the group uh, chat care to take a guess at what number five might be? What what is the missing? horsemen here uh and it's it, it i'll give you a hint it's not snarky analysts um <laughs> just to review we have people data process and risk management there's one more to go what do you think the big reveal might be um while while we're waiting on that because we do have a there's a slight uh slight streaming delay um i'll i'll comment also that that risk management is obviously like core to um to you know ai in particular as well and that's one reason why the behavior of enterprises is a little bit different than the marketing literature and why enterprise ai adoption is so radically different than the consumer adoption of chat gpt for example it's all it's all about risk right and 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 those of us who have grown up in the enterprise and grown you know picked up some gray hair in the enterprise know that inside and out because we've seen it many times right josh that yeah. that 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 those shiny sexy new technologies require a whole different they're a whole different can of worms um in an enterprise context well you know and just just to, to, to pile on a little bit more on this because it's it's a favorite talk um, topic. Brent, Brent wants pestilence. Pestilence. Okay. Well, here comes <laughs> pestilence. Uh, maybe AI is a pestilence for the day because, ironically, you know, one of the, one of the more interesting risk management stories that came out in the last couple of years had to do with this company Taulia that that actually um, SAP bought, I think, at the end of twenty one, and um, it came out of this uh, a scandal around this company called Greensill Capital, and Greensill Capital, which was backed uh, actually backed by Credit Suisse and had people like. Uh, the, the current prime minister of, of the UK and the previous prime minister, one of the previous ones as, as a backer, they actually come up with this new AI driven algorithmic analysis that would allow a, a lender to, um, to actually, um, you know, understand the credit risk for, for a particular supplier in a, in a global supply chain and, you know, and trade um, trade finance is a hugely important you know, lubricant, if you will, for, for, you know, for the global supply chain. And here's this company Greensill says, we have a better way to do this. And we're using AI. Isn't this cool? And everybody jumped in the, you know, on the bandwagon. Credit Suisse went, and, and Credit Suisse went so far as to say, this stuff is so cool. Let's collateralize some of these loans and turn it into a separate, you mm -hmm. know, financial instrument. We'll sell this collateralized financial, this uh, trade finance loan based on this AI that Greensill 
came up with, and we're going to make a boatload of money. And of course, you know, it turned out the algorithm was bogus. The loans were bad. The collateralized instruments were therefore bad, you know, and the, and the scandal fell apart. And it was fascinating. And this is this is one of the unintended risks of playing playing with fire, literally playing with, you know, Prometheus um, um, fate is that a lot of small suppliers were stuck holding the bag because this green silk capital scam had gotten them some some money that suddenly evaporated when you know when these financial instruments went under under underwater and Credit Suisse walked away and um, and there was AI about to doom all these small uh, suppliers and and actually this company Talia which was really functioning. Kind of, you know, they, they function as a as a as a broker, if you will, of of of, of finance. Um, they stepped up and found other financing, and um, and saved the day, and you know, and remediated this huge risk problem that that no one could. In that case, you couldn't even see coming because you assume Credit Suisse, you assume this 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 stellar backing of this particular company made it made it a good deal, um, and you know, and that that. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Bonnie. And that, that to me is one of the problems with, with risk management with a sort of an AI twist is that if we trust this stuff too much, you know, we, we put it into a black box and then we find ourselves being burned because it's, it's still not ready for prime time. Um, okay. Rant over. Right. Indeed. And, uh, I don't know if I can give the door prize to either Dan or Bonnie, cause they both cheated and read your, read your blog. Um, yeah. but Dan did post first on the spend management. So this is yeah. number five. So, so how, how did spend management make the cut here? What, what was the deal there? Well, you know, it really ends up being, you know, the, the buck stops here kind of moment. I mean, at the end of the day, everything, you know, everything we're doing in the first, you know, four of these is really trying to do a better job of managing money and managing, you know, the bottom and top line. And uh, it turns out that you know that stuff's hard. I mean, if you if you're if you're not on top of risk, as I just said, you're you know your 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 spend management is at risk. If you're not on top of the people problem, if you're not on top of um, it's all about the Benjamins. Uh, yeah, Benjamins times times a, a few million. Um, you, you know, so so all, you know the, everything sort of focused down into that moment when when it's like, okay, how does a company manage risk, manage people, deal with the data problem, um, deal with the process problem, and do it in an efficient way. And that turns out to be, in and of itself, a complicated problem. It's, as you know, I'm, I'm, you know um, I'm a big fan in, uh, you know, of network business models as one way to manage spend and manage risk simultaneously. And I think they come together um, uh, very nicely. Um, but this is, you know, this is it. This is where, where it all comes down is that if you really, you know, if you are not, you know, st sitting up at night looking at these four factors and, and seeing their impact on number five, spend management, then you're, you are really missing the boat. And I think that it's, you know, that's, that's something that's just, you know, keeps coming, um, coming back to haunt me. Continue. Dan brings up a good one because this was part of what was on my mind during our conversation was like, <laughs> are there other contenders that for the top five that are like, how do other things fit in? Obviously we kind of rule out technology because no tech can really qualify for the top five, but um, because this is sort of business problems that, um, but uh, technology would, would fit in to solve some of those problems maybe, but not, not be 
like one of the five. Um, Dan says, could digital business transformation be at number six? Maybe it incorporates the other five, so it's not a standalone. Interesting question. Well, you know, and and so the answer is yes and yes. I mean, without a doubt, you know, if if this you know this <laughs> the sub you know the subtitle is uh, the real issues that should be keeping every CEO awake at night, and you know, digital transformation is really there. There isn't a company I've run across in the last two years that isn't thinking about that. And you know, struggling with it, these five factors are really um, potential in, impediments to that. But uh, you know, insofar as it is absolutely essential to you know to doing business in the world today, you've got to you've got to figure out how to digitally transform or die. Um, the trick is to do it within the context of these other five, or you're or you're really gonna you know you're gonna blow out you know blow it out. Unfortunately, uh, on the risk and spend side, and I think that's. You know, that's again what we see a lot of is digital transformation is failing because they haven't figured out the data side. They they don't really have the process um, remediation nailed because they haven't you know broken down the silos. Uh, they're still struggling with with how to you know with the whole people uh, people issue in the company, and then they try to do digital transformation, and you know they come you're guaranteed to come up short. Every time, so. I want to make a little bit of a, a distinction here and see how this flies. The, I think the the CEO mindset these days, which I think is interesting, is I think there's this sense in pretty much every industry, though some industries are a little more conservative, obviously, than others. But, but there's this sense that that just being operationally efficient, managing costs, and riding out recessionary times is not going to cut it. That you essentially have to be competitive in your industry, which implies some degree of of business model change. Whether transformation fits the bill, I wonder a little bit because, like Josh, I think back to our time at, at ASIC Tech Connect and talking with customers there. And when we heard feedback from the group of customers we spoke with, there was only one customer and, and that was able to articulate a broad corporate transformation that was underway in a way that explained how their work fit into the context of that overall transformation. So while I would suspect that a lot of CEOs of of companies who had, you know, uh, employees there think about that, to me it doesn't really count unless everyone in the company can talk about we're part of a ongoing transformation. If they're not, then I don't know if that really counts. That's just more like the CEO trying to do cool stuff to compete. But I don't a transformation to me is a broader imperative and so few companies seem to have succeeded to the point where, like I was impressed by that one group of employees because they were able to really explain, this is the transformation going on and, and this is how our SAP project fits into this. And and But you don't run into that very much. At least I don't. Yeah. Well, again, you know, and that's, that's, that's a prescription for failure often. I mean, I, you know, the very, very best transformations I've seen start with this, this concept in, of, of change management you know, from the bottom up, and they engage in the the stakeholders, um, and they engage. You know, and they they engage the, you know, the enterprise because at the end of the day, transformation without change management doesn't work, and change management without engaging your stakeholders doesn't work. Um, so mm-hmm. you know, and we see a lot of we see a lot of failures. I, I was struck by something you cited in in your in your AI piece. You know, from I think it was the IBM study. And several other data points that you know, seventy to eighty percent of these AI projects aren't successful, which is um, you know, arguably a little, little less than you know, 
than double the rate of the general rate of of IT projects. But I think that without a doubt, you know, um, they're they're all suffering from the same problem, which is kind of, you know, <laughs> premature transformation, if you will. You got to get this stuff right uh, mm. first, and then transform. You got to get you got to get the AI case right, and not just you know, not just run with it and find out after the fact you got crap data and therefore you have a, you know, a crap outcome. Um, I think they're, they're pretty, they're kind of highly correlated. A few years ago, I was in a, I was in a retail podcast with a combative host and it was pretty fun. And he put me in the hot seat and said, he said, please name one successful large scale retail transformation. Please name one because I've been writing about retail transformation. <laughs> And and I, I I I named one. I mean, he was looking for more than one, really. But I named one, which was Target. But Target, even to that point, I had spoken with the CIO, so I knew a little bit about what they had done technically and stuff. But it was interesting because even subsequent to that, Target's had a lot of problems. Target's had some problems post-pandemic. They've had a lot of inventory management stuff that wasn't sorted out at that point that they're still working on. I think they may have made some progress. But the point is, like, one like I could come up with one and even that one was debatable. And I think that's just really powerful as far as how difficult these things actually are to pull off. Yeah. I, I you know, and you could add Walmart to that maybe cause they certainly transformed. Did they, you right. know, was it how, you know, and the, that's, um, <clears throat> it, it's like, are they really a role model though? In the sense that like how, yeah. if you're a smaller yeah. company, can you really model your transformation after theirs? I don't think Absolutely so. not. Yeah. Dan says 70% of digital transformations fail. McKinsey's been saying that since the nineties without backup. I call BS on that number because otherwise why would transformation take that risk? I, I agree with that, Dan, Dan. And I think like there's a point where like the word failure is really tricky too, in the sense that, you know, I, I know, for example, in my own career that that like apparent failures were really important steps forward for me in retrospect. And I think that's true for a lot of businesses. And so I'm not so sure that concerted efforts like that are a failure. It depends. I mean, obviously, if you have to declare bankruptcy, it is, but, but I think sometimes we do throw that word around a little bit loosely, but it does illustrate how difficult I think. I think to me, Dan, what resonates about those stats is more that they require this organizational wide buy-in and, and leadership buy-in and how fragile that is, right? Like where so, all it takes is some level of executive turnover or some disruption in your industry. And suddenly the stakes have totally changed. Right. And I, I think, um, Bonnie you know, says, what, what, agree on the high rate of failure. She's right. heard of successes at LVM brands and Pandora. Yeah. And, and I think when you get to, to, to some, especially in smaller mid-sized organizations, you can find a little more evidence of this. It's, it's really, really hard to produce these in larger examples in larger organizations, especially ones that had big legacy footprints, like in the retail example, for example, you know, companies that had already deployed massive storefronts across the country that are no longer potentially viable. Those are really, really difficult transformations. LVMH and, VMH yeah. says, but, yeah. right. And I think, you know, the, 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 yeah, a lot of this does hinge on the definition of failure. Um, and, you know, back to the, you know, cause, cause Dan's asking, why would you take the risk? Well, let's go back to my number four risk management. You take the risk in some ways for transformation because you will literally be out of business without it. You can't meet regulatory requirements. You can't, you know, you, 
I mean, you know, you know, if you're a regulated industry and in, in like a pharmaceutical and something's wrong with your material management reporting, um, you know, the FDA can literally padlock the door right there, then and there. So you'll undertake the the risk management task of upgrading to be compliant, regardless of whether it's going to be easy or not. Um, so I, th I think that's in part an answer to that. But I, I think, you know, I think we, um, you know, don't get me started on on <laughs> on project failure. Uh, we'll invite Bonnie. Yeah, out. yep. That's a whole other. That's a whole other topic. Yep, right. indeed. But the, you know what? What has well, the history of, of 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 our industry has been? You know, the, the history of acceptance of an enormous degree of waste and lost and lost productivity um, in the in the pursuit of of upgrading to the latest and greatest thing. And, and it's not always going to be, you know, we'll do it. We'll transform. We don't necessarily, you know, we can't necessarily agree. We're going to reap the benefits we, we intended from that transformation. Sometimes again, all you're doing is keeping the lights on anyway. Um, Josh, I want to get, I want to get back to um, a comment Bonnie made earlier uh, in some ways, spend management relates to time. In some ways, that is almost more valuable. Because Bonnie, I want to I want to ask you: Did you make it to the very end of Josh's post? Because Josh, your very last sentence in the post, which leads <laughs> us to the six horsemen always lurking in the background: time. Anyone who says time is on their side in a global economy is playing the riskiest game of all. So, perhaps she read to the end, or perhaps you all are just in sync there. We, well, Bonnie and I have always had, you know, the the mind meld going on. Evidently, yeah. Um, but time, yeah. I mean, that's that's and that's what's driving sort of the the the, the frenetic need to transform. In, in part, to answer, you know, Dan again. Um, you know, we are running out of time. Um, it's later than we think uh, <laughs> in every possible aspect of our lives, um, and. Um, you know that that means that you know that means you know the risk is increasing. Uh, that that if we if you stand still, you're you're going to be that shark sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Um, so yeah, time is the time is the factor, and that's I think we need to have maybe a little empathy, if you will, towards uh, towards you know the leadership leadership in this global economy because they're running. You know they are they are running out of time. Um, I would argue. Uh, you know they're being distracted by some of the false prophets, like like you know, artificial intelligence, uh, from these five basic issues that need to be tackled first. Um, but we are running out of time. And I, I, just to the the false prophets. You know, one of the things about you know, I keep I like to another example I like to give is of the you know the the, the friend who's a executive with a big financial services company who was you know saying, what do I do about these young these young bucks in my company, all they want to do is play with AI. And I say, well, you know, that's fun, but how 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 often are they using spreadsheets? And she's like every day. I said, yeah. okay, why don't you task some of them with fixing that problem? Because that's the problem that's really going to bite you in the ass. You'll never get to the AI solution with with you know with 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 spreadsheet data. Um, Indeed, Dan says Bonnie's spot on with her comments. Dan, uh. It's not the first or last time Bonnie's been on my show before. You can check out a replay or Raven Intel. Bonnie, you can send the check at any time. Um, Bonnie says that truly what, what defines a great leader, knowing what problems to solve. Um, we could probably do a show on that as well. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, about leadership lately in the context of how 
to me, like the quality I most admire in a leader, because I think there's a lot of things that you could make the case for. But what I have come to respect the most is people that recognize talent and recognize people who are better than them and surround themselves with people who are better than them in various ways. They come from very different, diverse, distinct backgrounds, and they're not afraid to be challenged and they're not afraid to get some muck in their gears as a result of that. And to me that if I had to pick one thing, that would be that. Yeah. And I, you know, I would also say, you know, yeah. Good leadership is also about, you know, standing up for some version of what's right. And John, you and I talked about this was it yesterday? You know, sometimes you know, the, particularly software companies are 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 you know our in, our industry is full of publicly traded companies that are, you know, a little bit, in my opinion, too. Um, thank you for your leisure. I think the, you know a lot of these public companies are too beholden to Wall Street, which itself is too beholden, you know, too beholden to you know to short term <clears throat> profit at at the expense of long term value. <clears throat> and I think, you know, one of the great leadership moments I'd like to see a lot more of on a regular basis is the, you know, is the place where the public software company says, tells Wall Street to go to hell. Uh, we're going to, we're going to do what's right for the customer and let, you know, let that value accrue over time. And if the next quarter doesn't meet your fancy, then, you know, go, go buy someone else's stock. But that's, that's just my, my fantasy that, that won't happen, I'm sure, in my lifetime. Yeah, Dan, it's, uh, that's, that's what Steve Jobs said. Surround yourself with people smarter than you and get out of their way. I don't think uh, Jobs ever said anybody was smarter than him. Yeah. So I, but, I, I, no, he but, wanted yeah. smart people. Yeah. And For diverse sure. and interesting people. But no, Steve Jobs, no one was smarter than Steve Jobs, according to Steve Jobs. Yeah. But, you know, it, it is interesting, though, because like this is one of the dynamics that I see so often in the enterprise field where you and I will go to an event or whatever. And then afterwards, They'll be like, what did you think of this or that? And we'll be like, well, we like this, but we really didn't like this, 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 and this. And they would have been like, gosh, I wish we'd talk with you beforehand. And it's like, this happens so much. And it's like, to me, that's what I meant by that kind of leadership, which is if you have that right kind of leadership where you're not afraid to get those dissenting and strong voices around you, then you don't have that problem as much of like, oh, I wish we'd had these conversations before. It's like, then you're having them all the time. And then you can, then you don't have to like, look back and be like, wow, we really screwed up our event this year. You know, you and I were just talking about a vendor that screwed up an event opportunity. And, you know, now it's another year before they can make, make good on that. Oh yeah, we well, should have done that. Um, Brent, uh, Brent, yeah, this has try. been, Brent says, this has been a good convo. Next time I need some pestilence teeth gnashing. It's Friday afternoon. Good stuff, fellas. Brent, great to have you here. And, uh, just a reminder, Brent's about this, to go this, off. This, I mean, we can sort of, yeah, yeah. Brent. What you got? Oh, there's your pestilence, Brent. Your pestilence. <laughs> just a reminder, Brent's about to go live in, in five minutes on, All right. Uh, on why, uh, YouTubers are quitting. I actually have some opinions on that. As I said, I spent a lot of time studying the creative economy. A lot of people don't know that about me, but um, anyway, so I have some opinions on that. I'll try to swing by Brent, but I got to wrap things up here. So <clears throat> yeah, Dan, Dan said, that's what he said, but he really meant no one is smarter than me. Yeah. Yeah, of course, for sure. Um, but, but you know, the point still stands. And I think Josh, I, I do want to hit on that a little bit because 
if 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 I would call attention to one potential flaw in your post, it would be if I'm an executive reading that, I'm like, where do I begin? Right. You know, so yeah, that's all that's a lot. You know what legit, I mean? Legit comment. And you know, John, you're the one who always reminds me I should be put something positive at the end about how to fix the problem. I just got everybody weeping about, but um, yeah. How do you fix this? Right. Where do you start? Um, and you know, honestly, I would start with data. Just start. If you're going to, if you got to pick one place to go, go fix your data problems, really dig into that because everything, everything's going to be, that's going to be the, the major gating issue you can't fix the people problem necessarily that's system that's systemic you know, to the economy um your process problem needs needs good data your you know <clears throat> your your risk and and spend management need good data so start with data um yeah for sure and you know the other thing i would comment on there is that I wrote a post about a constellations event and what was fascinating there was watching all these CXOs. We were having a big collective group AI debate and it kept on going back to data governance. <laughs> Everyone, uh, you know, the, some of the AI cheerleaders want to talk about ma automagical AI and everyone's like, but data governance, data governance, data governance, I need a framework. I need. And uh, I thought it was really interesting that that just happened organically. And the, the one thing I would say that I think we do need to make an adjustment on is you know, we we can't we can't go back to the drawing board with multi-year data cleansing and governance initiatives. What we I think what we need to do is to take a page from some of these use cases of take an area where you do have some quality data and do have a good head start and apply some projects onto that data, whether they're analytics projects or you know, customer facing app building or whatever it is, like like use that data, build momentum and then forward that momentum into further data projects. Because I think the real trap would be, okay, let's go back into this massive data initiative. And it's like, no, you need to, the one thing that's changed now unquestionably is you have to be prepared for the for your board and your leadership team to come back every few months and ask you, how is this going? And it's not going to be good enough to say, well, you know, we've cleansed this and we've done this and we've like, you know, you have to be able to say this is a this is a win that we've stacked up along the way here. But, but with that caveat, I think sounds like great advice. Start with data. Well, and you know, and you're absolutely right. And I, you know, I always, I, I've always been against the data mart, the data warehouse, the data lake, swamp, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> and you know, I would agree. And and if if to get a slightly fine tune that, I would say, you know, if you're in a if you're in a manufacturing uh, product kind of world, then you've got a supply chain problem. Go fix that. You know, you just have it. You know you have a supply chain. Everyone does. So start with that. Start with what is the data I need to fix my supply chain problem? And you know, you're going to find out that you're going to need accurate supplier data. You're going to need some you know, accurate, much more accurate order data, much more accurate um, <clears throat> uh, parts and you know, and et cetera, et cetera. Logistics data. Go go start with that solving that problem. Um, and and find the data about it. Yeah, don't boil the ocean. Just fix every every piece of data in the enterprise. That'll that'll drive you mad. Yeah, for sure. And so so maybe that that comes down to how you you start to overcome and deal with these these really vexing problems. The is to pick 
pick something that you know you can stack up some successes with and then build that momentum inside your organization that the, the people can see that that benefit accruing to them somehow. Uh, you know, the other thing that's on my mind a little bit that I wanted to mention briefly is just on the people side, I think one of the really fascinating things that I'm tracking there and writing about occasionally still is this whole return to office component of that, right? And that like people to me also translates back into like, how are you sourcing talent and how does that work? And to what extent are you providing talent, flexible ways of connecting with your organization? If you're demanding a return to office, what what is the premise for that? Why are you doing that? <laughs> Why is that so important to put people through mind-numbing commutes? Uh, do you have good reasons for that? Have you really looked at that? Or are you trying to prop up a, a flawed real estate footprint that you're trying to rationalize? Like, I think return to office and all that stuff and hybrid work and everything like that is at the core right now of people and, and talent. So I, I just wanted to mention that. So no, and you're, you're, yeah. And it's, yeah, that, that's its own, that's its own podcast. Cause there's a, there's a lot to, it is, it is. Problem. <clears throat> Um, and, and ironically, because you and I have talked a lot about, you know, about community and community building, community development, um, you know, we we both acknowledge that face-to-face events have a huge amount of value and by extension, face-to-face interaction do as well. So there is something to be said for showing up to a place where you can actually interact, uh, uh, you know, in, a, in, in real life uh, with your with your peers. Um, and the question is, what is the balance? Yeah, and what's what's and 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 what is the balance? And do you need a central office location for that, or are there other ways of facilitating that? I had a really interesting conversation a while back with a smaller services firm, and they did kind of what I sort of advocate, which is they kind of went back to the drawing board and kind of said they could kind of whiteboard it. They didn't have some obligation to like, okay, we have to all be back at the office. They said, what what do we really benefit from, from a face-to-face context and, and how do we do it? And it turns out for them, actually recreational time together is what makes the biggest difference. And so they get together for more culture building stuff that isn't even about work. Um, and, and, and what they find is the relationships they form from that inform a lot of the virtual collaboration that they end up doing on a daily basis. I'm not saying that that work for everyone, but I thought that was so interesting whether they really discovered like, you know, what's priceless, is 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 time where we're just enjoying each other's company and and having more <clears throat> informal conversations like that's what we're missing the most and they found a way to build that back into what they're doing so i think that's really interesting so yeah. but i, I well, don't think a lot of know, companies are being that creative about it so the the, cor- the correlation to that is you know we we talk about having events where it's there's just a lot of places to sit down and eat and drink and schmooze and it's that same sort of let's let's make it easy to socialize uh, yep. With our peers, and and let that social interaction be the you know become the foundation for for better you know business interaction. I think if y'all are interested in that topic, I wrote a fun post on designing events, enterprise events for serendipity on Diginomica, and uh, our mutual pal Park Paul Cucina helped me with that one with some really cool source sources. So anyway, just wanted to mention that. Okay, final comments from the audience. Did we cover that adequately for you? I hope you enjoyed that. I. I really like these this blogs that matter format because I think, you know, when someone really puts a lot of thought into something like that, I want to dig into that. So it's a real to me it's one of my favorite things to do, but it requires a really good blog post. So thanks Josh for seating. That my for pleasure. Us. Thing. I, flattering to be part of it. And yeah, it's it's certainly fun for me and fun to have the interactions as well cuz getting a 
you know, getting other people's opinions on this, even if they don't 100% agree, um, is, is really is, is good. I, I am one of those people who wants to have <laughs> criticism and, and open dialogue. I don't this is not gospel that come down from the mountain. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks, Stan, for, uh, for joining. Glad to, glad to see you in the chat. It was great to have you definitely come back. I try to do these on Friday afternoons when I can. And, uh, I have some, um, guests that are not the familiar faces that I have a list of them that I want to get onto the show. Some of them are real ambitious, including, uh, someone who won like a Nobel type prize. So, um, I don't know if I'll be able to get these people, but anyhow, um, but, but it does take a lot of time for me to get the, get p- new people organized for these jugular conversations. It's a lot easier for someone like Josh. So anyhow, um, because Josh knows how I roll and how these things go. So it's a lot easier to be like, Hey Josh, can you come on this Friday? But anyhow, it's been great. Thanks a lot, Josh.